Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. His name is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has written the name King of Kings and Lords. I hope that you uh, are able to sing this morning, All Hail King Jesus, um, with a vision in your mind of what it will one day be like to behold him face to face. There is no one in all the world like Jesus. If you have your Bible with you, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open it to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue in Mark chapter 6 this morning. That little bit from Revelation is inspired by the song, not part of the message. However, I have to move quickly. Have you ever heard the expression, full send? Full send. It's kind of like the acronym uh, YOLO, you only live once. Full send is particularly applicable to the world of extreme sports. The essence of it is that you do something with reckless abandon, full throttle. 100% commitment, even if you end up failing. And in extreme sports, the consequences can often literally be fatal. If you Google it, uh, you'll see these spectacular feats achieved by uh, ordinary or seemingly ordinary human beings, and then you'll also see these glorious, spectacular failures. People like watching <laughs> failures. Now, you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with a message? Well, as I prepared for today's message, uh, what's happening in today's passage made me think about that idea of full sin, committing uh, to something so, with such reckless abandon, giving it your all without uh, ever uh, worrying about the outcome, win or lose, sink or swim, pass or fail. And that's exactly what we see in this passage in, in the world of extreme sports, you see individuals squaring off these daunting, against these daunting circumstances, a challenge, uh, and failure uh, is as likely as success. What you really see in this passage, what we're going to deal with over the next two Sundays, today and next weekend, is a collision between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. There really is a way in which uh, this, is, this world is at war, and this is the greatest war of this world. In every situation, in every location, in every circumstance, there is a war raging between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. It's a conflict between Jesus and his followers who are up against seemingly insurmountable, daunting tasks in a world that is racked by sin and rebellion and all of the forces of darkness aligned against it. Here's an early takeaway. If you are a Christ follower, you cannot live in the now with a peacetime mentality. This is not peace. Our world does not know peace. This is war. With the ongoing march of the kingdom of God, there's a war against the things of God, and though victory has already been successfully achieved at the cross and then the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, nevertheless, a battle rages on, even if we are confident that it will be finally won. There will be a day when the war will cease, 
and we will live with Christ and reign with Christ in peace forever. All hail King Jesus. On. And you really see that picture in the remainder of chapter 6. Uh, first, we notice uh, in the passage that we'll look at, verses 7 uh, through 13, and we'll also include verse 30, that you have this significant transition in the ministry of Christ and in the move of the kingdom. Uh, for the first time, the disciples of Christ are no longer just witnesses to what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. They're going to be called to be participants in the very work of the kingdom. It's a very, very significant moment. And although uh, the, their calling, the calling of the twelve who uh, we see today are apostles, their calling is very specific, they had a very specific assignment. It's the beginning of God's call on his people to be involved in his work. If you're God's child, you have not only been welcomed into his kingdom, having your sins forgiven in Christ and adopted as his children, but you have been drafted into the work of the kingdom. And that really begins in this moment where, God sends, where Jesus sends out the twelve in a way that we can understand with that phrase, full send. With a reckless abandon, without regard for whether it will be rejected or received. Let's begin uh, in verse 6, the second half of verse 6. And he went among the villages teaching. This follows Jesus' uh, uh, complete rejection in his hometown of Nazareth. Verse 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and, put on two, and, and, put on, uh, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. Now this is the only place in Mark's narrative where the disciples are going to be seen operating apart from Jesus, with the exception of two very small passages where Jesus is actually absent. Uh, there were uh, certainly many other occasions that Jesus sent the disciples out, but Mark limits our view to this particular one because, it's because of its pivotal importance. And that's because this, the first of their assignments uh, is a passage which foreshadows the task that they will receive upon the resurrection and ascension of Christ uh, back to the side of the Father. But Mark's placement of this story is especially important. We find in this passage uh, another example of Mark's sandwiches. We've been talking about how Mark will start a story, then he'll interrupt it with another story, and then he'll come back and put on the last slice of bread uh, with the original story. Uh, and this is a classic one because it's incredibly clear because of the terse bookend of the end of this story that we find in verse 30, which is simply that the disciples returned to Jesus and reported all that they said and did. We'll come back to that passage. And sandwiched in between this story is the account of John the baptizer's death. There are only two passages in the Gospel of Mark that are not about Jesus. Both of them are about John the Baptist, and both foreshadow Jesus. John is the forerunner in ministry uh, to Jesus who begins his ministry after John. And then John is the forerunner foreshadowing Jesus in death, uh, a death that Jesus will ultimately die. 
the fact that Mark uh, inserts the execution of the last Old Testament prophet in the, in the context of sending out uh, and returning of the twelve uh, on their first mission is intended to draw a reader's attention uh, to the idea that Jesus' rejection in Nazareth and John's death say something about the cost of discipleship and the mission of Jesus. Now, verse 6, uh, second half of 6, he was a, a, went about among the villages teaching. We're reminded of chapter 1, verse 38, when the people were enamored with Jesus having the hot hand. They wanted to see more miracles, and Jesus refused uh, to comply with the crowd. Instead, he left in chapter 1, verse 38, and said, uh, let us go to other villages, for I have come. It is for preaching that I have come. And so Jesus is continuing his ministry, even though he's been resoundingly rejected in his hometown. Just as Jesus has been demonstrating uh, for the disciples, uh, Mark has been showing his readers, particularly the Roman Christians, that's who Mark is writing to, and they're facing suffering uh, from the Roman government. Uh, and he's uh, encouraging them uh, to recognize that even in the midst of the inbreaking of God's kingdom, rejection is reality. Rejection is reality. If Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, can be rejected in his hometown, it's been a lesson to the disciples that wherever they're going, faithfulness is not being measured by how well people receive you. If, if there are people in your life that God is calling you to share uh, your testimony about Jesus Christ, your job is just to be faithful to share. You can't save anyone. And that a person might reject uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit has no bearing on your testimony. We're just called to be faithful. What, what we're to, intended to see as we study the disciples is that rejection is never a reason for despair. Like, no sooner has Jesus been resoundingly rejected than he says, we've got other people to reach. Let's go. And so he calls the seven, or the twelve rather, in verse seven, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And when we think about the disciples to this point in the Gospel of Mark, um, this seems premature. <laughs> like, don't we all want to say, Jesus, they're not ready. They don't even fully understand who you are. Like, at every turn, they're perplexed by your person. Surely they're not ready to take up the task of going and preaching to other people. This has got to be a mistake. To this point, uh, the disciples have proven to be better at doing what Jesus said than actually understanding who he was. And this ought to be a great encouragement to you and I. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So there will always be situations we will find ourselves in as we walk with the Lord where like we're in over our head, we don't know enough, I don't have the words but as, uh, the whole, as, as Jesus encouraged uh, the disciples early in the birth of the church, that it would be the Spirit of God speaking through them. They were simply to trust that he could use them. So the twelve have been called, they've been designated, they've been taught, and now they're going to be sent out. They're no longer just listeners. They're no longer just spectators of, of miraculous things. They are to, be sh they are to share as stakeholders in the work that Jesus came to do. And as such, they constitute uh, the judgment on Jesus' part uh, of the apostasy and dis uh, unbelief of the Israelites as well as the rest of the world. Now, if you follow that to our day, that you and I, as we live for Jesus and as we share Jesus with other people without any control on who receives and who rejects, we are both the offer of salvation 
And we are also a testimony of God's judgments against people who are apostates and who refuse to believe. And so the 12, very symbolically, because uh, Jesus is uh, reconstituting God's work. There's 12 tribes in the Old Testament, and Jesus has chosen 12. And he sends them out two by two. Very practical reasons for this. He sends them out two by two for mutual support, uh, for protection, because it was dangerous uh, to travel the roads, and uh, as a check and balance in their message. Uh, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 said uh, that every matter uh, must be established by the testimony of at least two. And so by sending them out, Jesus was sending them out in such a way that they were, uh, they were uh, fulfilling what the Scripture required of anything that was purportedly true, that they could both bear witness to it. Now, two things are, are predominant. And Jesus sending out the twelve. First, he gave them authority. Uh, in Jewish law, uh, the one uh, who is sent uh, is sent carrying the authority of the one sending. This means, uh, and the idea of sent one, which we'll see in verse 30, sent one is, uh, he gives us the idea of the definition of the word. In verse 30, he's actually going to give us the word. Sent one means apostle. Uh, again, this uh, speaks to the uniqueness of the role of the twelve uh, and the unfolding of Jesus' ministry. We are disciples. Uh, they advanced to apostles because he invested power in them and he sent them out. And the disciples would have recognized that uh, they were Jesus' representatives in the fullest possible sense. If one was sent by an authority, they represented in earnest the authority of the one sent. And that means that those who received or rejected would have realized that they were receiving or rejecting Jesus himself. Now, I've, I've already told you in Mark, uh, Jewish rabbis didn't send out disciples. When they called disciples, they were inviting them to study Torah. When Jesus called disciples, he called them to himself, not to Torah. Revelation just told us his name is the Word of God. He is the Logos. He is the Word. So not only is Jesus uh, unique uh, in calling disciples to himself, he's also unique in sending them in his name and in his authority. So this exousia, we've talked about that Greek word over and over, uh, this exousia that Jesus possesses innately to himself, he didn't purchase it, he didn't get educated for it, he didn't set himself apart and distinguish himself by reputation, it is who he is. He's just divested this power uh, to his apostles as he sends them out. So they have a, a tremendous responsibility. Uh, as they go out, they are to carry Jesus' exousia, his uh, authority, and this further signals the inbreaking of God's kingdom. No longer is it just that Jesus is capable of doing and teaching profound things. Uh, his movement is now beginning to spread. And the earmarks of who Jesus is is recognizable in the 12 that follow him. They're able to reproduce. It's a tremendous responsibility for them to show that the kingdom is advancing. And even if it doesn't look like it today, the kingdom of God continues to advance. They also had a sense of uh, a spiritual dignity, uh, of uh, authority. Luke chapter 9 verse 2 uh, phrases this passage that they went to proclaim the kingdom. The word proclaim is the Greek word keruso. It's the word we get preached from. And the message that they went to proclaim is the same that Jesus started in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Uh, it's to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Sinners who have formerly been at odds with God can be reconciled to their creator and can enter his kingdom of blessing, hope, and salvation. 
Additionally, in addition to giving authority, Jesus also uh, called them to a manner of life. Uh, the, second, um, the second significant thing is that he called them to a manner of life. There's two sets of instructions from verses 8 uh, through 11. The first set of instructions deal with what and not. Uh, beginning in verse 8, he says, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. In, in keeping with Mark's pace, we are meant to sense that these instructions are emergency instructions for a swift and dangerous mission. None of us knows. In fact, Jesus himself says, even the Son does not know the hour that the Father has appointed to him come. So we're, uh, it, it, uh, all of creation is unfolding against this clock that's counting down, and no one knows what the answer is until the Father looks to the Son and says, go get your bride. And so there has to be for the, for the apostles this sense that we don't know what's happening next. This is an urgent mission, and it's dangerous. So what he tells them to take is a staff, uh, sandals, and a single tunic. Uh, the idea is that there's no spares. They're not carrying any luggage. They're, they're not going on holiday. Uh, this is uh, kind of like Paul Revere uh, riding his horse and calling out the British are coming. Like he wasn't in a chuck wagon full of supplies. He was on a horse. He was traveling light because the message had to be spread quickly. And the same thing Jesus intends the disciples to grasp uh, as they go out uh, to do what he has done. And the idea here is that functional simplicity heightens and enables urgency. You know why you may not be urgent about the kingdom of God? You, might, you know why you may not be urgent about reaching people around you uh, who don't know Christ? Because your life is not functionally simple. Our lives, by contrast to the apostles, are incredibly complex. We have filled our lives, our days, our hours with every conceivable thing we can do to entertain and to earn money uh, and to achieve the things we want. And because of that, because of the lack of simplicity, not only is our soul frenzied from running at too high RPMs, we're insensitive or distant from continuing Christ's work in the world. Why is it urgent? Well, I would say that the reason why it's urgent, and we're just another generation and so many generations that have gone before that have genuinely believed in the imminent return of Christ, that at any moment, God could look to his son and say, go get your bride. And that's because we have to look at things from God's timetable. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Like, uh, the world that we're so consumed by is but a vapor to God. Like, the world he spun into existence is nothing to him. Human time is not a limitation, and he's not preoccupied with it. Uh, so he needs to create in the disciples a sense of urgency. Uh, the second, he says, this is what you are not to do. No food, no bag, no money. This is perhaps the most startling uh, of Jesus' instructions. You can imagine the disciples' faces as he's saying, no food, no, no bag, no money. And that's because uh, during this day, uh, Cynic Greek philosophers were roaming around doing the very sort of thing that the, the apostles were going to uh, appear to be doing. Only they would carry with themselves bag for, uh, for uh, begging for contributions. And they would happily improve their lot by kind of like moving up the scale. But cynicism was essentially a attack on civilization. Not, Jesus didn't come to attack civilization. He came to uh, redeem. Or rescue, they're telling the disciples there's to be no begging. 
They aren't to be looking for handouts. Uh, God's kingdom is inbreaking, and that means a whole lot of things, but it doesn't mean you're going to be found lacking or in want. An important observation here is that uh, these are identical instructions, the identical instructions given to the children of Israel as they were fleeing Egypt. Travel light. God was doing something new. He was about to rescue them. He was about to save them from bondage in Egypt. They were to travel light. Uh, it, this is uh, intended to, to drop the idea of haste and expectation, that we shouldn't just be coasting through our days in this life. There's something vitally important to live for. Jesus is trying to teach them not only a sense of urgency, but a, a sense of dependency. That like the children of Israel, they're marching out of Egypt into a world of unknowns, but they're to trust that the God who has delivered them will continue to provide for them. It's not like the disciples won't need to eat or that they won't need shelter, but these things will ultimately come to them from a sovereign God who chooses to move through the compassion of other people. We spend so much of our lives chasing after things for ourselves instead of just learning to rest in God's sovereignty over us. The way that Gideon's army had to do when it got pared down. The way the, the birds of the air who, who, who don't even give thought to their existence are cared for by the Father or the lilies of the field. The idea here is that functional simplicity also fosters dependence and trust that enables sober obedience. Like when we know that we know that we know that God is good to his word, that he will care for us, that it invites us to boldly be obedient to what he's calling us to do, even if the circumstances seem insurmountable. Everything about Jesus' representatives is to be done like Christ would do it. So the tone of their conversation, the style of their lives, everything about them uh, is to reflect their master, and everything should give expression to seriousness and urgency. Listen, there's nothing like the mission of the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Uh, whatever it is that you've given your life to, it may be important. You may, be do, you may do great things, but nothing as, as significant as the work of the local church in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world because eternity is coming and no one knows when that will be, either for you or for the world in which we live. Then he gives a second set of instructions. Verse 10, he says, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, uh, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, uh, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your, your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus says simply, when you get to a town, stay where you start. Like it doesn't matter if it's someone who's impoverished and all of a sudden the town's takes a liking to you, and some rich person says, hey, I've got better accommodations. This is precisely so that uh, the gospel would not be seen as a movement of upward mobility. Like Jesus wants to save you, but it's not so that he can make your life in this world great. That's not what he's promising. He's rescuing you from an, uh, an eternity spent uh, separated from the God who loves you. And so in contrast to the cynics, there's no begging and there's no upward mobility. We're to see that uh, trust in the goodness of God's provision for us and eliminate uh, the presumption that salvation has anything to do with ethnicity, national descent, race, or even monetary wealth. And their assignment turns on receptivity. So when they go somewhere, if the town is receptive, they're to stay. They're continue to do ministry. <clears throat> continue to do ministry. 
If not, they're to leave. This means that they have to maintain a balance between fearless uh, uh, perseverance and foolish uh, persistence. Like, you have to know when you've started casting your pearls before swine. Like, there's a point at which if someone is rejecting what you're offering them, Jesus would say it's time to cut bait and move on. Look for receptivity. It's interesting because Jesus' mood changes here. It's almost like he's uh, uh, thinking in his head about his rejection in Nazareth. And he tells them, if the town won't receive you, then leave. And as you leave, shake the dust off your sandals. Uh, When a a, a moral uh, or a practicing Jew would travel into a Gentile area, when they left that area, they would shake the dust off of themselves so as not to carry the defilement of Gentile areas. So what Jesus is saying here is that just because a person is part of the, the household of Israel does not mean that they will receive the kingdom. And if they do not, they should pass judgment on them by shaking the dust off of their sandals. Matthew adds in chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus saying that uh, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for the town that rejects him. It will, be, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who outright reject Jesus. The principle here is that progressive mobility underscores the urgency and brevity of the opportunity. So some pastors, uh, uh, preachers do their dead level best to try to create a sense of urgency to say to you, if today is the day, if the Holy Spirit is talking to you, do not procrastinate. Do not walk away from it. Not because we're trying to uh, gin something, some kind of reaction out of you, but I, the Scripture says it's just a vapor. You do not know that today is not your last day. So good advice for all of us is that we, we should live every day as though it were our last. And that means, most importantly, being prepared for eternity. Verse 12 says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. So the disciples obey and go. And while their ministry is intended, to, the threefold idea of, of, of teaching and healing and casting out demons is to reflect that they are sent by the authority of Jesus. The most important part, the, di- the dominant purpose of their ministry like Jesus is teaching, preaching. As we have seen, even the performing of a miracle does not necessarily elicit a faith-filled response. It is uh, God's word that is unchanging. Only revelation offers the possibility of greater understanding uh, and commitment. And so this morning, if you don't have a relationship with God, but for the first time you're contemplating, you're hearing, uh, you're, you're hearing truth, and your heart is wrestling with it, you should know that that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, to reveal Jesus Christ to you so that you might, like the disciples were preaching, repent, be forgiven of your sins, and adopt, be adopted into God's family and new life. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. The apostles replicate Jesus' teaching and his works. Uh, it's authenticated uh, that he is their sender. They are sent not to do a new work, but to continue and to extend the work that Jesus has begun. Now, this is unique because Jesus never anoints with oil to this point in in Mark. We don't ever see that, but Mark uses the phrase anoint with oil, and anointing with oil could be done for a number of reasons uh, at at this particular time. It it, it was thought to be medicinal. Uh, Oil could be used for uh, medicinal purposes, but here, uh, that's not the case. 
They lack no power, just like Jesus, to do what Jesus had sent them to do. So anointing with oil here uh, is rather an Old Testament sign of divine blessing, the way that prophets or kings would be anointed. So Jesus was doing three things by sending the twelve, deeply symbolic of God's renewed people, that they, had, they were in the process of being changed, that there was a new kind of life coming to them. These three things, uh, while uniquely uh, apply to the apostles uh, who had a specific time and place and purpose, they still echo truths that apply to us. Let me give you three thoughts. First, Jesus' disciples are sent as a witness to the imminency of what happens next. Now, for the, for the uh, apostles, th- this is true because they were actually helping Jesus pave the way for what was going to come next, and that was to be his journey to Jerusalem, where he would be uh, handed over, uh, he would be tried, he would be tortured, and he would be crucified. That's what was going to happen next to the disillusionment, the great disillusionment, even of the disciples. Uh, for the apostles, this meant uh, the pending uh, crucifixion and then subsequent resurrection, but for you and I... What happens next is the telling of the story of redemption. When we become disciples of Jesus Christ, he is sending us out in the same way that he sent the apostles. is watching of the imminency of what happens next. Like when we share with someone who doesn't know Christ, what happens next for them may be the, ch- the changing of their soul uh, if they repent and receive Jesus or they might reject. If you're a Christ follower, then Jesus has sent you. You're under obligation to the Great Commission, Jesus' final words before ascending to the Father in Matthew chapter 28, where he says, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. In the same way that Jesus uh, handed his exousia to the apostles to carry out uh, his, to extend his mission, he has also given to us his power and his promise to be with us as we do what he commanded us to do. It's not the job of Rick Borkovic. It's not just the job of the pastor. Everyone who knows Jesus. Christ has a share. You're to be shareholders in taking Jesus to your sphere of influence. Maybe that's just your family. You'll spend eternity grateful that you pointed your kids toward Christ. Maybe it's just a neighbor. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be filled with such phenomenal gratitude to see that person in heaven. But every one of us has a share in the work of Christ. And what's sad about our ch- the church, the church universal, and in our day, is so few people. Rick Warren always says it's like watching a football game. So much of the church is in the bleachers instead of the field. If we're going to reach the world for Christ, to do what God has left us here to do, then we have to have a sense of urgency, the kind of urgency and simplicity of life that breeds flexibility. The problem with church is that we have an overcommitted subculture Christianity. We're so busy that the most that we can do for the kingdom is show up to church and give a few bucks. But when it comes to listening to the Holy Spirit to tell us, you know, your grocery clerk right now, they're in a bad place. Maybe you could say something encouraging. Maybe you could ask them if there's something wrong. Maybe you could pray for them. Maybe you could tell them how I've changed your life. 
This is what God has called disciples to be. We are to be uh, witnesses of the imminency of what happens next. In order to do that, we have to trust. We have to learn to depend upon him. This is why Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, uh, trust, or, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. Everything else that you've chased and gotten for yourself, he was happy to give to you. But it needed to follow the priority of his kingdom. Uh, Peter Singe, uh, in his uh, organizational leadership book, uh, called the title of Fifth Discipline, talks about creative tension. He uses a giant rubber band, and he talks about how uh, an organization is only going to succeed, an individual is only going to achieve if they have a vision for their life uh, that uh, is held in tension with current reality. If the rubber band is not in tension, that means there's no vision, no compelling vision, and no earnestness to actually deal or change current reality. But if we allow God to teach us dependence upon him, and, and he stretches us to recognize that we're to have an eternal focus, that we're to be storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. Wherever your heart is, there your treasure is also. If we have that compelling vision, then it's going to draw us to want to change current reality. We'll want to see our world know Jesus. We'll want to see more and more men and women be prepared to sing, all hail King Jesus. But if there's no vision for that, if you're not living for eternity, then you'll just be complacent about the world that is. You'll just be sucked into modernity and all of your busyness. And you'll never find time to be useful to God in advancing the kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. God, I'm making his appeal through us to other people to come to know him. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, that's not about my function in the church. It's about all of us. Caruso, it's, it's about all of us telling of the greatness of Jesus. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Church youth being sent. I don't know who it is that God wants you to reach. I just know that he does. And I know that if you ask him in time, he will show you. Second, Jesus' desire is that people will repent and be prepared for what happens next. Verse 13 in Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says, the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but all uh, to come to repentance. As disciples, we are representatives of Jesus, and like the apostles, our lack of understanding or our uh, often being ill-prepared uh, is not surprising. A genuine call to follow and serve Jesus always calls us to things that we are not adequately prepared for. I don't have the words. I don't think I could ever tell someone. I can't. I don't know enough scripture. You don't have to. If the Holy Spirit is moving you, he'll do all the heavy lifting. He always does. The person that helped lead you to Christ, it wasn't because they were a towering intellect. It wasn't because they were a great theologian. It was because they were indwelt in with the Spirit of God who loved seeing men and women come home to Jesus. Listen, rejection is always a reality. Be prepared to be told no. Be prepared for worse than that. But rejection is never a reason to despair. Paul gives us insight uh, into this in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4, where he says in verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what happens next for the one to whom uh, God uh, has redeemed uh, and then puts someone in our path who needs to hear uh, about the story? The, the possibility, the thing that happens next for them is either rejection or repentance and receiving. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 says, how shall we escape so great a salvation? Listen, you might have a lot of good advice for people. You might be an incredible husband, incredible wife, great parent. You might have a lot of nuggets to dispense around. But if you know Jesus Christ, you know the most important thing in him that this world is desperately dying to hear. Dying to hear. Third and finally, Jesus' mission is the groundwork for the very different thing that happens in the aftermath of great catastrophe. Now, of course, for the apostles, this was what was going to happen in Jerusalem when Without their understanding or comprehension, Jesus is going to be brutally murdered. He was laying the groundwork and sending them out to begin to talk about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God to prepare them for what was going to happen in the aftermath of the great catastrophe, where Jesus is going to take a rank-and-file fisherman whose education only extended so far. He's going to give to him the keys of the kingdom, and he's going to preach, and multiplied thousands of people are going to come to know Jesus Christ. That begins in Acts. Though the great crisis in view in Mark's gospel came and went with Jesus' death and resurrection, the church and the world have faced all sorts of crises at various stages in history. And the greatest crisis is yet to come. It's the one that comes when Christ comes again. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. In Matthew chapter 24, when the disciples are asking Jesus, when are these things going to happen? Jesus says, uh, he describes uh, wars of nations warring against one another, and famines and earthquakes, and he says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. As disciples, we are called like the apostles to recognize a, 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 a spiritual sensitivity and a discernment to know how to respond. We need to know where there's an emergency. The church should always respond to things that are going on in the world. And we need to know what steps to take in response. To capitalize on the brokenness of this world. The fact that this, war is, this world is at war. That we walk around deceiving ourselves into thinking uh, it's, it's all hunky-dory because we live here in the West. And we have what we want. For you and I to be disciples means that we have a spiritual sensitivity to react to what God is doing in a person's life, uh, in, in our world. We don't need to be deceived by this manifest destiny. Like we've, we've so settled the West, we've so settled America that we've lost our pioneer spirit. 
we're just sojourners here. And the only reason why he left us here is to perpetuate his work in the world. We are called to live between the prophetic call of God and the pain of this present world. That's that creative tension between eternity and a broken world. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that, you ha- that is in you. And do this with gentleness and respect. Verse 30, the end of the sandwich. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They report back to Jesus. They give an account. This is a foreshadowing for you and I. To whom much is given, much is is required. You and I one day, according to Romans chapter 14, Paul says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give account of ourselves to him. John's martyrdom, which we will consider next week, prefigures Jesus' crucifixion, but it also exemplifies the consequences of following Jesus in a world of greed and decadence and power and wealth. Mark's move from the total rejection of Jesus and Nazareth to the sending out and return of the twelve and John's death sandwiched in between is intended to impress upon us the cost of following Jesus. And if you know Jesus, then there is no other option. There is no salvation apart from following the Savior. So we are all called to increasingly steward our lives toward God's purposes in this world. This is uh, not an easy thing to live in the tension between eternity and the, the reality of our lives now. But this is the call of the disciple. Not merely to live in the world, not, not content to say, well, I've got fire insurance when I breathe my last. No, we're supposed to be making heaven, in some senses, present on earth by how we live. So the litmus test for us in this passage is how do we respond to the message that Christ has sent to, his wor- to us in his word? How do we react to his authority? If people are watching you, would they draw the conclusion that you are a man or a woman under authority? Would they derive from how you comport yourself, how you live, how you act, how you speak, that there is a source of authority to whom you hold yourself accountable? This is what it means to be his disciple. How do you treat those he sends to you as servants? Are you willing to repent, to see your life utterly transformed? It's not enough to feel sorry for sin, we have to turn around and become what he's creating us to be. If you've repented, are you actively taking up the charge to be Christ's ambassador? I don't know to what extent it will be. I don't know that God would call you to join Rick in Taiwan, but it's entirely possible that he has plans for you that you don't know. What are the essentials? This is an important one. What are the essentials that you need to function effectively as a witness for Christ without losing your dependence? The problem is, I think for most of us, is that our bank account, our financial portfolio, is so significant that we don't really need God. And tragically, we've never learned to depend upon Him. And because of that, we've never seen His glorious provision that where He leads, He provides and there is no better provision. 
If we're to take up our cross and follow Jesus, then we must grasp his vision for the world. We have to think and speak and live like he did, Christ in us, in our place. We have to live under his authority, faithfully proclaim the truth, follow in his footsteps as we uh, replicate his actions and prayerfully pursue the multiplication of his dominion in this broken world. We need to live full send for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the example that we have in the apostles and uh, to know that that rejection is is not a reason to to, to be shut down, that rejection is just normal, that when someone rejects, it's not us they're rejecting, it's you. Thank you that you show us a, a beautiful example of what it means to live for you. Even you had one among the 12 who would betray you. I pray, Father, that you would move in our church, you would continue the work that you have started, that you would uh, transform us as we have repented and given our lives to you, that you would not leave us where we are, but that you would help us to increasingly grow in Christ's likeness. And then, Father, that you would help us to see ourselves as sent ones, that we are your witnesses to a world desperately in need of the word of your transforming grace and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, Father, as we store up treasures in heaven, we know that one day we will rejoice when we stand before you that we have given ourselves to the most important thing this world has ever known, to the work of Jesus Christ and the redemption of your fallen image bearers. Please help us to be that church. Please help us to be that people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.